1: Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicles political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicles senior political writer, and today we're talking with Jennifer Carroll Foy. Now, as longtime listeners know, I regularly like to introduce you to up and coming candidates from around the country, and that's what Jennifer is. Right now, she's running for governor of Virginia and gaining some momentum. It's a tough race, but she's gaining some momentum. Starting with the recent endorsement from Emily's List, the powerful organization that supports pro-choice democratic women. But more than that, Jennifer is unlike many politicians. And that's not just because that if she were elected, she would be the first black woman to be governor of any state. It is because she has a lived experience that few politicians can match. From being one of the first women to graduate from the Virginia Military Institute, to dealing with tough times financially after she had her job hours cut during the pandemic. As she says, I don't have to empathize because I understand. And now here's my conversation with Jennifer Carol Foy. Jennifer Carol Foy, from your uh, home in Woodbridge, Virginia to my daughter's bedroom in Oakland, California, welcome to It's All Political. How are you doing?
2: Oh, I'm doing well. I'm so much better now that I'm here with you.
1: (laughs) Excellent, excellent. I really wanted to have you on because you have an incredible life story, and as you like to say on the campaign trail, unlike many candidates we see out there today, you have walked in people's shoes. And so, I want to I want to stick with a little bit of your life story, which is very interesting. Uh, you, you were born, uh, you were born raised in uh, Petersburg, Virginia, and with by your grandma.
2: That's absolutely correct.
1: Tell us a little bit about that. She uh, she raised you, and then, uh, but did she worked uh, at the local hospital there, a little mental hospital there? But then. She got Uh, ill. And and tell us about that and how old you were.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, Petersburg is my hometown. It's a place I love. Um, It's where my roots are. And um, I'm a daughter of that area. And I can tell you that it was once an affluent place. But when uh, businesses closed, jobs left, despair crept in. And there's so many communities throughout Virginia who share that same story of politicians making false promises, believing communities, and predominantly African-American communities like Petersburg behind in the dust. And so luckily I was raised by my grandparents, uh, but specifically my grandmother who had me in church three days a week.
1: Ooh, um, three days. Me,
2: yeah, that's right. That's mm. uh, that's choir rehearsal, that's Sunday school, there's children's church, there's regular church. Wow. Um, and so... It taught me, you know, to be a woman of God and to lead with my values. And so it's my job to house the homeless and feed the hungry. It's It really does, doesn't get any simpler than that. Um, and I watched her as she did those things, as she worked at Central State Mental Health Hospital, volunteered in our community, even like people from our church who fell on hard times come live with us until they wow. got back on their feet. And so, you know, seeing up close and personal at a young age, I believe I was about... I wasn't in my 20s yet. I want to say maybe like 19 or so. Um, and I remember her having a stroke and becoming a quadriplegic. Oh, my god. And goodness. having to sit at my dining room table with my aunt, trying to decide if we're going to pay for our mortgage that month to keep a roof over our head or for the medications keeping my grandmother alive.
1: And you had to cut back on medications and, and such, right? Because it, there's, there's, that's what, what a lot of people do.
2: That's right. That's right. All of the prescriptions and medications that she needed, we just couldn't afford. So some we actually cut up her pills to make them last longer because that's all we could afford to do. While others, we just hope for the best.
1: And you, you in in that uh, upbringing, then you went to the Virginia Military Institute, and you were one of the first women to go there. Now, why did you want to go there? Um, you and you know, you'd be going to an environment where it's mostly uh, men. It's a military environment. Tell us about how, why you made that decision.
2: Absolutely, I ended up at VMI because uh, someone told me that I should not go and I could not go simply because I was a woman. I'll never forget being in my high school JROTC class and we were watching the uh, Virginia Military Institute Supreme Court decision on TV. And I didn't know that there were colleges I couldn't attend simply because I was female. And that VMI spent millions of dollars to keep women out of its doors. And the men in that class said things like women, women are born inferior, um, our brains are smaller. We just can't do it. We can't get it done. We cannot uh, reach the same levels as men. And so I remember hearing former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in that opinion. And she said that women can do all things if given the opportunity. And if a woman wanted to go to VMI, then she should not be denied. And so that's all I needed to hear. And I turned around and I told those men in that class, I said, I'm gonna go to VMI because I'm just as powerful and smart and capable as any man in this class. And they all protested. And my best friend at the time, he was gonna go to West Point. And he walked up to me and he said, you know what, Jen? I was gonna go to West Point, but now I'm gonna go with you when you go to VMI because I wanna be there to watch you when you fail. Oh and man. said that, I said, challenge accepted. Wow. So he, another male in our class went and I went. And when they got their head shaved bald, so did I. When they put on a man's uniform, I put on a man's uniform. And for years, I marched, sweat, and bled beside over a thousand male cadets. But at the end of the day, out of the other two men who went with me to VMI, I am the only one of us to walk across the Virginia Military Institute stage.
1: Wow. Was that was that lonely being the only woman there?
2: Yeah, it was absolutely lonely. It was. Um, it was lonely. It was you know, scary, it was something I would never, you know, (laughs) at this day and time, like encourage anyone else to, you know, do, because it was at that time dangerous actually. Because many of the men had it made up in their mind that by any means necessary and at all costs that I could not and should not be able to graduate and have a degree with the name Virginia Military Institute, you know, you know, on, on, on that degree. Like I would want their legacy, I did not belong. And so um, there are some things that happen that will always, you know, not uh, be repeated, but it's truly unfortunate. But I can say that it really helped make me to be the woman that I am today, to be able to withstand whatever is thrown at me. It has, you know, broadened my shoulders and strengthened my back to be able to carry the entire weight of the Commonwealth of Virginia and on this race to become the next governor.
1: What, what was your toughest day there and, and what got you through it?
2: Well, um, I have to say that every day was tough. It was, um, you know, it was one time that I think I suffered almost three days of sleep deprivation. Um, I wasn't allowed to eat. Um, and some other, you know, things, <laughs> unfortunate things occurred. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, one of the things my family would do is that I would call and i say, okay, I'm done. I quit. Come pick me up. And VMI is actually in the middle of nowhere. It is far out. You have a barracks. Um, and, um, there's not mass transit. And so unless someone like literally physically comes to pick you up, you can't go anywhere. And so my family would be like, Oh, okay. You know, we're getting in the car We're, you know, our bags are in the car. We're on our way. And Joe, they would never show up. So, (laughs) and i would fall asleep it would be another day and thinking about it, I mean, i'm like that's was pretty smart that's pretty
1: smart <laughs> and then you came out of there and you uh went to law school and you became a, a public defender why'd you why'd you want to be a public defender i know I, you know of course in the story of kamala harris and and uh grew up around here if a few, a few uh a couple of miles down the road from me here in oakland and uh she said her family was like uh you know they wanted her to be a public defender and he's like no i want to be a prosecutor i want to i want to change the system from the inside and so dude did you what about what was your philosophy on that
2: so i've tried um different practice areas so i tried civil litigation it didn't move me just people fighting over how much money they should get whether it was you know 1 million dollars or 1.1 $1. $1 million dollars what did move me is injustice you know unfairness You know, I explain to my clients, I am that brick wall protecting you from government overreach. My job is to make sure that your constitutional rights are protected at all costs. Um, Sometimes I tell my clients that, you know, my job and I told people when I describe what I do as a public defender, I'm not telling you what I do. I'm telling you who I am. You know, I am here to be that that fighter for people that other people have displeasure disregarded, my clients are 100% below the poverty line, they have mental illness and substance abuse and their children. Um, The people that you step over on the sidewalk, right? Those are are the people that I am going to bat for in the courthouse every single day. And, you know, as we have all recently noticed is something that I've known for a very long time and so do so many other public defenders is that the system is unfair and it is unjust and it works differently if you are wealthy Um, and white than if you are black, brown, and poor, and that shouldn't be the case, but that is the reality. And so fighting those fights and um, going into that courtroom every day to make sure the right thing happens or the best thing happens, um, then that is my job. And it's something I'm very passionate about. It doesn't feel like work, it feels like a calling. And um, when you have a calling on your life, to give a voice to the voiceless and to fight for those who can't fight for themselves, I could tell you it's the best feeling ever.
1: Did you, how, how was your uh, your career and, and the way you approached it shaped by uh, how you grew up?
2: Oh, I think that- And where you grew up. Absolutely, growing up um, in Petersburg, Virginia, you know, in one of the poorest communities in all of the Commonwealth, um, I could tell you that I it is my lived experience you know, seeing people work 40 hours a week and bringing home $14,000 a year and having to cut up prescription drugs, make them last longer myself, um, you know, having to make those hard decisions between mortgages and medications and going to underfunded uh, schools and having unlicensed teachers teaching in classrooms. I mean, because I have gone through that, I am better on the other side because I see the opportunities that we have and the things that need to be fixed and the broken systems and the you know politics as usual that has failed so many Virginians. And that's why I'm in this race and I'm running for governor. It's what made me become a public defender and a foster mom and a community activist because I always wanna put my advocacy into action. And I wanna build a Virginia that no one has to have the same struggles that I did. If we're still having these same conversations in my children's generation, then we've done something significantly wrong. So I think that the lens that I see things through, I, you know, it's because of where I come from and it informs how I fight and who I'm fighting for, those who have been ignored, neglected and left behind for too long and to repair what's broken in our healthcare system, in our economy, in our environment, in our education system. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes at all costs to make that happen.
1: You say you were a foster mom and then you um, you got married with a fellow VMI graduate, correct?
2: Yes, he, my husband went to Virginia Military Institute. He yeah, did.
1: yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, um, and he, said, I think you joked that uh, he met you when you were bald, so that was uh, you know, it was it was he was interested That's in the not you, lovely. not your hair or anything it like must that.
2: Be
1: love. <laughs> <laughs> it was it must be love. Well, my look at my my wife is still into me, and and, uh, and I'm bald. So uh, you had you got pregnant as you were running for the Virginia House of Delegates, correct? That's right. If uh, I got the timing right, and then um, this is something that I don't think pretty much never happens to most candidates. You were put on bed rest. It was a difficult pregnancy. Uh, You're put on bed rest, right? Uh, With twins during the recall. I mean, what, I mean, how did you, how did you deal with that when you're, I mean, that's like, you know, the most intense point of a campaign and here you are in bed rest, you know, with twins. How, how did you, how did you walk us through that?
2: Yeah, so I could tell you that you know never did I think of my wildest dreams that that would happen. I announced um, the last week of January 2017. I was running for uh, for House of Delegates, and I became pregnant uh, on Valentine's Day of all times, of oh, course. Man. With twins at that, and so I knew it would always be a difficult pregnancy um, because when you're a mom of multiples, it's just going to be more complications. And then you add on top of that, still working as a public defender and you know running a campaign while being outraised four to one, flipping a seat from red to blue. I mean, these aren't you know light endeavors that you're taking on, Um, but you know able to push, you know, being able to push through was so important. And, um, I knew that I wanted to build a better Virginia for my children that, you know, we can do, you know, whatever we set our minds to and just pushing through and making it happen. And I could tell you, I was put on bed rest right before the election, but luckily my husband and my team was able to bring it home. And then, yes, I gave birth, um, During my recount pretty much, because my God margin only 10 votes. So went to automatic recount. And I had no money left. And luckily, Emily's list uh, came through and they paid for my recount attorney. They said, you know, we got an emergency here, guys. We got it. we have a a candidate here. She's given birth and she Won her race, we think, but we got to help her out. So, <laughs> luckily, organizations like that are there to help people like me in those situations. Because we ask women and you know moms to run, but we got to be there with them in the trenches, and that's what happened. And we brought home the win, and the rest is history.
1: And but that isn't quite the end of the story on that, because after you um, you had the twins, and they're they're doing very well. Uh, you were not feeling well. What mm-hmm. happened there? And then at first the medical folks you talked to kind of blew it off, correct?
2: Oh, that's correct. That is absolutely correct. So, you know, after I gave birth to my twins, I actually had pain after I gave birth that was worse than labor. If And I didn't think that was possible. And I complained and I complained and I notified the nurses and the doctors and they told me repeatedly that it's common, it's normal. Um, you know, they just gave me more prescriptions and, Wrote me off. So I wasn't believed, I wasn't heard, and I wasn't seen. But I wasn't home before I should have been and before I was ready. And oh I'll never forget, you know, I was walking and then I just fell to the floor, um, fell down to my knees because the pain was so excruciating. I couldn't move. Oh, and luckily, Jesus. my husband, Jeff, you know, he said, This is not right. This cannot be normal. And he picked me up and he put me in the car and rushed me to the emergency room where well, they immediately admitted me and informed me that if I would have stayed home just a few more days, I would have definitely lost my life. Oh my and God. So that is the, you know, black maternal mortality phenomena, where because of racism and bigotry and discrimination, you know, it is costing black and brown women our lives. Um, and so it has to be addressed in a real way, even in Virginia, with the 10th wealthiest state in the nation. But women are dying at third world country rates, and it's absolutely absurd. So, taking on that challenge, and after I became a legislator, is one of the first things I took on to make doulas covered by Medicaid so women can get the culturally competent care they deserve. Because you should not have to have a Jeff Foy in order to survive uh, childbirth. But what you do need is a governor who understands and who gets it and who will pass bills and budgets to ensure that we reduce the black maternal mortality rate and this does not continue to happen.
1: It is, it's like 243 times, black women are 243 times more likely to die in childbirth uh, than white women. It, it's, it's an unbelievable statistic. Uh, Uh, By the way, uh, Terry McAuliffe, one of the one of the people you're running against, uh, he he wrote in his book that uh, he left his wife in delivery room to attend a party at uh, one point. That's so there's a there's a difference between the candidates here, I believe.
2: Stark contrast.
1: (laughs) We'll have more of my conversation with Virginia governor candidate Jennifer Carroll Foy after this short break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: And now, here's more of my conversation with Jennifer Carroll Foy. Now, you decide to, when the, when the pandemic hits... Uh, you and your husband both employ, but uh, in fact, you're both working a couple jobs. Is that accurate?
2: That is accurate, yes. What,
1: uh, tell us, and so this, and you have two little kids, like many Americans and few politicians, you're facing some tough economic decisions. Walk us through what you uh, had to do then.
2: Absolutely. So, you know, for me, you know, after you know, COVID-19 hits, uh, the cases slowed down because the courthouse is closed and there are no trials that's happening. And, you know, we're processing people slower and doing things slower. So, you know, my salary decreased significantly. Um, my husband, he houses homeless people in Prince William County. So there was a bigger demand for his, uh, his what he was doing. Um, and he also is a high school, you know, head track coach and cross country coach. But again, you know, once the school closed, that checked uh, subsided, if not stopped as well. Right. So we had significant shift in our income, as many millions of families across this country did. So we had to have a, you know, sit down at our kitchen table one day and say, all right, we have to figure this thing out. There's some bills that we're gonna have to prioritize and some will have to wait. And that's just the reality. And so having those type of conversations, you know, is what I took with me when I went down. know, to the General Assembly when I was still a legislator and say, we have to provide people relief. There are people who have, you know, applied for unemployment insurance, it's been months and they have heard nothing, right? We have to end the practice of employers just being able to object and terminate people, um, you know, uh, unemployment insurance when there's been no ruling. We have to address that. We have to be creative and not just have everything being reported by mail this is 2021, we can have people, or 2020 at that time, we can have people, you know, provide information electronically, you know, through email and faxes. And so that's the great thing about having those lived experiences, because you bring them to bear and you're a better legislator, you're a better executive because of it, because you don't have to empathize, you understand the struggles that everyday Virginians face, and the hard decisions that have to be made. Um, And that's, that's, What's important? And that's why I prioritize particular things like paid family medical leave, paid sick days, increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, not five years from now, but now. And treating our frontline workers as the heroes they really are, but that needs to be reflected in their paycheck as well and in the job benefits and health care that we provide them. So all of these things are interrelated, intertwined, and that's why Virginia needs a new leader with a clear vision and bold ideas on how to move us forward.
1: Uh, that help, help me out here for those of us who are not familiar with Virginia politics here in California, a, a couple of things. First of all, I still don't understand how Ralph Northam, the man who's caught using black, pictures in blackface years ago, is still the governor. Why did he not get booted? And you're, then your uh, 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 the lieutenant governor, who's running against you, Justin Fairfax, also has had sexual assault allegations against him. He is still in office. It seemed like that was a few years ago. This, th- these guys were both on the way out, and yet they're both still there. Why Why is that?
2: Yeah, so a lot of people have asked me that, um, you know, what, what's happening in Virginia. I could tell you that February, um, I believe it was February 1st when the first- um, things started to come out and unravel, it was absolutely astonishing. And no one was more surprised than the people in that general assembly, as we were on the floor voting for things and hearing about these controversies as they uh, played out. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's just here in Virginia, I know that people are trying to be more forward looking, right. And we're trying to say, you know, what can we make of this and how can we Build things back better because of it, and I think that Governor Northam, um, he made a commitment to racial reconciliation, um, and there were many, many strides that that came from that. I have to say, um, and it forced a lot of people to do to have a lot of conversations about us in Virginia, having a history that's rooted in the Confederacy. Um, But how are we going to celebrate our diversity and move us into the 21st century? And so getting to work as a legislator is something I'm really excited about. So passing a bill to prohibit the use of chokeholds by law enforcement officers and actually ending pregnancy discrimination, chief co-patron of the Crown Act, so uh, people of color can no longer be fired if what naturally grows out of their scalp, ending black girls school Pushout. So I carried a bill that says you cannot tell children that they cannot come back to school until they take out their braids, locks and off their hijabs, their religiously significant uh, headgear. And so all of those things we were able to usher in and get done and you know, beat back voter suppression making election day a state holiday, repealing strict voter ID laws, uh, no excuse absentee voting. We were able to use you know, these unfortunate instances that happened here in Virginia and use it as a springboard to say, you know what, we are going to do big, bold, progressive things and move Virginia forward in a real way and have these uncomfortable conversations. And I'm excited to have been a legislator and play such a large role in ensuring that we build a more equitable Virginia. As I say, you,
1: you represent and come from a predominantly black uh, city. Uh, uh, how do you go to those parts of Virginia that are the old South? That are uh, you know, uh, that are that are you know, it's 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 a long time ago in some of those places. What how do you how do you appeal to voters there?
2: So I think at the end of the day, what matters is are the issues that you fight for, and will you be their voice? So I'm excited that a large percentage of my policies that I'm fighting for will help people the most who are in rule in Southwest Virginia, the people who, you know, most people think will never vote for a Democrat like me, but I'm fighting for a refundable working families earned income tax credit. So if you make $20,000 or less and you file taxes, it's refundable. That helps the majority of people who are in ruby red areas. When I'm talking about, you know, unions and how I have more union endorsements than any other gubernatorial candidate, the people who are building our rural bridges, painting our schools and our federal government workers, they stand with me because I stand with them. And I know that a job with the union is the best, most efficient way to the middle class. Mm-hmm. Many of them are in your rural and Southwest and ruby red areas. Um, but at the end of the day, $15 minimum wage, expanding Medicaid, it helps everyone. And so I have policies that, that crosses all sections And I believe that when you fight for people, they will fight for you. When you stand with them, they will stand with you as well. Um, Because at some point, you have to ask yourself, who's going to bring more to my family? Who's going to improve our quality of life? And if the way you've been voting and things you've been doing have been working, then maybe you need to do something different. So we offer a lot of options. We are a, a unifying candidate, which is something I'm very excited about because there's been so much divisiveness over the past couple of years, Virginia's are looking for someone to vote for. And that's an inspiring candidate um, who has a record of getting things done and who's going to move Virginia forward in a real way.
1: Um, I want to ask you about uh, marijuana that is uh, going to be legal in, in Virginia by the time you take office. And uh, how do you, you know, one of the challenges we've had here in California and other states is to we talk a big game on equity and how to make it how to make sure everybody has a chance regardless of uh, you know, uh, your color, to have an ability to own, to get to get some to get some money out of this. It's, it's you know here we had a problem with a lot of the money. a lot of it uh, the, uh, the places uh, the dispensaries were and some of the, the big operations here were the tech people bought into it. you know I mean <laughs> that tech, tech money came into it. How do you? How do you? What's your plan for making sure that the that the system is equitable there? Uh, regardless of who you are?
2: So I'm excited to say I carried the bills to legalize marijuana for several years, and we finally got it done here in Virginia. But the most important lift is ensuring that the social equity programs are implemented and fully fundi- funded in a ma- meaningful way. So some of the things that I will get done as governor is ensure we have expungement of all marijuana convictions, not just sealment, which is the current status of affairs today. Sealment, people can still see we need full expungement as if it never existed. Um, also, the people with- Sealment
1: them, means your record is sealed. It, it just doesn't mean it goes, it's not expunged. There's the, that's, that's the right. difference, okay. That's
2: right. Particularly people can still unseal it and still see it, but okay. we want expungement totally gone. Right, um, that's and a big difference. Huge difference. And then also ensuring that the people who have been punished and penalized for doing something that's now legal um, They are the ones who get the first licenses. So you're right. We do not want, Joe, the Walmart of marijuana coming into Virginia and scooping up all of the licenses and then relegating Virginians to lower class levels of of sales, like working the cash register and stuff. We don't want that. We want them to be able to profit and to take ownership and have entrepreneurship in this industry as well. So making sure that those people who have been most hurt and harmed by our war on drugs, disinvestments in their community, mass incarceration are the ones who are reaping the most benefits. So having that, those programs in place is something that's very important. and something that I would do as governor, but then also making sure 40% of our revenue go towards uni- expanding to get us to universal pre-K for every three and four year old. And then also 40 more percent of that revenue going towards social equity programs that's gonna uplift those communities. So day centers, childcare centers, um, having community service boards that's gonna help people with drug addiction, mental illness, diversion programs, more money for at-risk schools. Our Title I schools have high percentages of free and reduced lunch and English as a second language learners and uh, special needs children. They will get even more millions of dollars added towards that at-risk add-on. Those are the things that we need to do. Have STEM summer camps. for our children to learn skills and trades and build that pipeline from high school to a job, that's what I will get done as governor because that's how we're going to beat back child poverty. We're going to really address the racial wealth gap and have true equity here in Virginia.
1: I want to ask you one or two more things? One of them was um, uh, you just got the, the, the nod from Emily's list again, but you're running up against one of your one of your uh, your your chief rival. Or your, it is your chief rival, it's Terry McAuliffe. Uh, former governor, but but before that, you know, a major Democratic Party fundraiser, uh, the, one of the, the greatest fundraisers of all time, you, you know, and he could call in all his buddies, the Clintons, to come in and do appearances and such. Uh, you, as we've detailed, you're you're not coming from family money, you're, you know, and even Barbara Lee is, on this very podcast, we've talked about it, the challenge, even for Barbara Lee, an icon, uh, for a, a black woman to raise money in politics. um how do you how do you how are you doing that and what's uh, talk about the challenges there and and what you're doing to overcome that
2: yeah so i could tell you joe that um you know power begets power and you know these systems aren't made and created for a person like me a millennial a woman of color with young kids to run and win for office and that's you know why we're here to shake up the system and politics as usual. You know, women, we're not begging and asking the patriarchy for permission. We're kicking in the door and we're taking what's ours. And that's why this moment is so exciting because it really is about, you know, organized people beating organized money. And I feel so confident that we're going to make that happen because we have the resources, we have the message, and we have the mobilization and organization of people to get it done. A lot of the groups who helped bring home the win in Georgia, we're going to replicate that here in Virginia. There is a groundswell that's happening underneath our feet, which is really exciting because our message resonates with the people. They see themselves in need in this campaign and this election because it's really about the past, Terry McCullough versus the future, which is me. And Virginians are ready to move forward and not back. And so I can't think of it any more simpler than that. Um, and it's really exciting to see what we're building here. I mean, I like to tell people that everything is impossible until it's done. and. You know, like all the other things I've done in life, I've always been told no. Nothing has been given to me. Nothing has been easy. Making it out of Petersburg, being one of the first women to graduate from Virginia Military Institute, running for the House of Delegates while pregnant with twins, flipping a seat from red to blue. One of the things that people will learn about me very quickly is that I eat no for breakfast. And so this <laughs> no different.
1: That is a hell of a bumper sticker. I eat no for breakfast. I love it. <laughs> Jennifer Calfoy, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Good luck in your race.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me.
1: Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Talk
2: to you soon.
1: I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Jennifer for being on the podcast today. I'd like to thank Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode. And of course, a shout out for our fabulous theme music. That song is Cattle Call written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song.